0: Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox, because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur... We all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast You know, I know you've heard me say this, but I continue to be just so intrigued and in awe of the heart-centered leaders that I'm finding around the globe, and there literally is no sector that we've not crossed. And today, I'm really excited to introduce you to Mark Azule. Mark, I'm hoping I get 100% on my pronunciation of your surname there. Mark's a psychotherapist who has a private practice in Boulder, Colorado. He's the past president of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society, and Mark likes to help his clients who may have a harmful relationship, and he frames it that they may have it from inherent aggression or stuck on that hamster wheel, stuck in the pain, and they're on that hamster wheel of repetitive choices or compulsions. Many of Mark's clients struggle with addiction, anxiety, and self-sabotage. So for those of you listening today, pull up a chair because this is Mark's wheelhouse. He helps people uncover and destroy their unconscious barriers that cripple them by using a blend of modern psychoanalytical and contemplative, I probably did not pronunciate that right, Mark, psychotherapy. Mark's style can be described as irreverent with surprising moments of profound depth. If that's not an introduction to pull up a chair and grab a coffee, I don't know what is. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Mark, I love your bio. And I have been waiting to interview a psychotherapist that looks at themselves in a heart-centered way. So I'm going to start with my leadership questions if you're ready.
1: I'm ready to go. Let's do it.
0: I love the way you frame the population of clients that you're helping in your practice. And I know that you really embrace vulnerability and transparency as a leader. Please talk to us about toxic masculinity and specifically what you can, obviously, without breaching confidentiality. Do you see it as a rinse and repeat in the workplace? And what's some strategies that you can give to our listeners? Because it's been a big topic here on the podcast.
1: Yeah, it's a huge topic, and it is very pervasive in the workplace. And I want to first say that toxic masculinity doesn't just mean men right? It's actually kind of a set of values that some men inhabit, some women actually embody. It's kind of this idea of being anti-heart centered, really, you know, it's this idea of not having feelings, really valuing being tough. And what most people say by tough is more like numb, like not feeling anything, not having empathy, not having compassion. Uh, this idea that hard work and just raw hours and raw output is the secret to any kind of success. It's not really about collaboration, it's not really about you know working smart, it's just about working hard and working long. And this also idea of isolation and loneliness, that to ask for help is a level of weakness. So this thing can show up with male leaders. it can show up with female leaders, it can show up in workplace culture is really common. Um, any workplace that punishes people for asking for help, that disincentivizes collaboration, that has competition, not in the friendly way, but in a way that, you know, if you're underperforming, you lose your job, right? Or you get written up. All these types of things are examples of toxic masculinity. Um, you can see it as kind of the, I don't know, the, the darker side of the capitalist system that I think we, we run on where it's all about results. It's about working people, you know, to death or to exhaustion or to burnout. Many of the companies that I've worked with you know, before they work with me are are known as kind of grinders, which I'm sure you've seen where they're having massive staff overturn and they're losing people. You know, they retain people for a year, maybe two, but then they recruit more people. And the, the leaders uh, oftentimes male are angry and they're resentful. And they're like, why are these people betraying me? And they're not loyal and they're not on the team. And why are they leaving? I do everything for them. And then, you know, when you look at them through a coaching or organizational development or therapist lens, it's like, well, There might be a reason why they're leaving, you know, Um, and it works with their, you know, resentment, their anger, their anxiety. And that's one example of how toxic masculinity is pervasive in the workplace.
0: Well, thank you for qualifying that it's a set of values. It's not gender based, which I love to hear. And I'm going to switch my second and third question because you dropped some really good nuggets there. You talked about what I like to frame as consequence management, And I want to use a scenario and I want to see how you would navigate someone through this. So we're in the great resignation boom, which I'm going to leave to my last question. But let's say someone does go off on a short-term disability claim because I used to be a medical case manager. So we we have some intersection in our our wheelhouse of offering. So let's say that John goes off on a short-term disability claim because of that toxic masculinity that we just talked about and everything is offered and sequential as it should be from the employer. They're benevolent, they're empathetic, they are offering some heart-centered qualities. When the time is right for John to return to work, that toxic masculinity resurfaces and it's a trigger for John. And it's what you just talked about. It's that consequence management. Like, let's get back to things. I pay you to do this job, John. You've just had six months off and we've got you therapy and we've got you this. Walk us through so employers and employees can understand it's a process, but all these soft skills and heart-centered leadership still needs to be, most importantly, at the bridge when we're returning to work. So whether we talk disability claim mark, or we talk return from hybrid. Give us a little Cole's notes because there's so much synergy in that toxic positivity, regardless of who it comes from. I would love to see how you handle this and what you would offer as a professional therapist.
1: Yeah, that's great. I think the thing that is mainly missing from that scenario is that the employer doesn't often do any work. Right. So if there's a medical leave and there's something, you know, around an illness or an injury or, you know, a rehab or something. Right. The employee does a lot of work. Right. In, in fact, most times they are mandated by their employer. Hey, go to this program or else you don't have your job, which is problematic in a certain way. But that that being said. That person is doing deep emotional work, often with a therapist. And what that means, and it's good for employers to know this, is it's not just fixing the problem. It's actually understanding their childhood, understanding their past trauma, oftentimes kind of r- unsurfacing toxic patterns or toxic relationships that have perpetuated in their entire life. So when you're asking that person to, I'll just use it, addiction, because that's where most of my experience is, to you know, get clean and stop drinking on the job, for instance. You're not asking them just to do that. You're asking them to actually overhaul their entire life. And sometimes that means changing a relationship. Sometimes that means, again, overcoming past trauma, making sense of their life, cutting people out of their life, you know, having new healthy habits. You're asking really for a full overhaul if you want them to become the employee that you want them to become. What's difficult is that when they come back from something like rehab, if the employer, if their employment workplace employment hasn't changed, you're gonna get retriggered, just like you were talking about, Deb. You're gonna to get totally retriggered because all that stuff is there. And they're coming with this new lens. Oftentimes, you know, if the therapist is a good job, they're coming with higher self-esteem. <laughs> you know, they're coming with a lower tolerance for things that were hurting them because they're aware, sometimes hyper or even over aware, I gotta give them that grace, of things that are triggering, where any little thing is gonna feel like an eyelash on their eyeball. It's gonna be really irritating and incredibly sensitive. So I think what's helpful for employees to do, and I'm sure you talk about it a ton on this podcast, is just to listen, right? If you can only do one thing is listen to your employee, to work with them, if you can, towards like the back half of their medical leave to help kind of rev them up and get them ready to reenter the workplace. Ask them, again, as much as they feel comfortable, but asking them, hey, what did you talk about in therapy? What did you learn? You know, do you have any feedback for me? What was helping? What was working here? What was not working here? And having the employee feel like they have some kind of impact on the culture, on the policies, on maybe their team, something, right? Something so they feel like they're not just totally disempowered. And for those employers out there that are saying, oh my God, this sounds like a lot. I didn't sign up for this. I just want an employer, employee back, this person, I want to say it's really clear to you, this person is just a symptom of a systemic issue. And even if you fire them and they leave, there will be another that will have a likely very similar type of issue right? That will, that the addiction will develop, that a similar injury will happen, that the person will have to take a medical leave of, of absence. This is a symptom. This is like kind of like a, a bubble boiling in the pot. And by listening to them and taking in feedback, of course, that's reasonable and relevant. You can start to understand what is causing that pot to boil and work on your own business's issues at the root.
0: I'm going to repeat what you said, because it's the mic drop moment for people the symptom of a systemic issue. That is it. That is the root, that's the etiology. You can keep putting band-aids on, but you're gonna lose the employee, they're gonna quit. It's gonna be that rinse and repeat, so powerful. Thank you for, for guiding us through that because I think a lot of people are gonna to relate to this right now. It's why they're leaving. You know, We've always had the great resignation boom It's just more out there now because of COVID. People are more vocal. People aren't tolerating systemic issues and toxic workplace environments. So powerful. Okay. So my second question, which is now my third question, it has permanent residency on the show, Mark. And I've asked over 170 leaders this question, share with us what imperfections that Mark brings to his practice.
1: Oh God, so many. I mean, I think <laughs> I think the imperfection that I have is, well, I guess two things are coming to mind. The first one I think is trying to be too available and trying to do too much. So, you know, I'm a solo practitioner. I have one kind of semi-employee that's like a personal assistant um, and I, that's it. That's my whole company. So in my practice, I tend to want to answer all the emails right away. I tend to want to launch a bunch of different products all at the same time. I I get really excited about the work that I do. And in that, I end up pretty burnt out. You know, I can go really hard for a couple of weeks and then I'll have a weekend where I just crash out and can't talk to anybody, can't listen to anything, just really get flamed out. That's something that I'm actively working on is trying to delegate more, trying to um, prioritize projects, trying to hire experts to help deal with things because as things grow, I mean, there's a, actually a, a, on my desk over here, I have a picture of a Hydra, which I, is a reminder of this, is that whenever you cut off the head of the Hydra, right, two more pop back up. And if you have a successful practice, which, you know, I do, and I'm sure you do, it's this idea of when I launch a product, two more projects come up out of that. You know, when I recruit a client, I get a couple more leads out of that. You know, when I spend energy launching my podcast or doing marketing, whatever, I get more things out of that. So everything grows. And I need to just have that there so I can remember that I need to do what, you know, Hercules did, which is like cauterize. So end things or recruit people to help manage those other heads. Because as my practice is in a growing phase, it's something that continues to keep spiraling. And it's a good problem to have. But my thing is that I... I want to do it all. I want to control it all. I want to have influence on it all. My voice and language and marketing is very much unique to me. And I don't really trust anyone else with it quite yet. But that's maybe you can help coach me around that. That, That's something that I'm and help that I'm trying to work on.
0: Well, first of all, congratulations. Um, I'm a solopreneur too, and I have a small team of two to support me. But I think you described what I call the excitement we get as solo entrepreneurs with our thought leadership. Mm -hmm. And I think we all go off on that. Okay, I'm in the mode. Let's do it. Get it written. And for me, I try and work ahead as much as I can in pockets of time. But I always allow white space in my calendar. And we've talked about that a lot on the show. Even if I'm in the middle of something good, I carve out that time to step away from the desk, get outside, get moving. It just recalibrates, it refreshes. And then I come back and it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to finish this now. So I think it's very personal, but I love the energy and excitement that you bring to your practice. And I love the analogy of your, your visual cue above your desk to remind you. And growth will always happen where there's positive energy and excitement. And to me, just keep doing what you're doing because it's, it's working.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's very helpful. You know, it's the difference between, you know, working in my business and working on my business. And like I was saying, the more I work on my business, the more I have to work in my business and those those kind of time windows, that white space starts to shrink over and over again. So
0: you can't let it shrink, Mark. You got to have that know, on and in it. balanced. It's it, it, it's an ongoing love hate relationship. But I feel you. But yeah. it will happen in due time. Just make sure you you put yourself first, because the better we are as men and women running our business, the better we are at managing all those hats and the people that help support us to do so. Mm-hmm. Okay, my last question, I'm so excited to ask you this. So when I had my case management practice, like you, I saw various patients with various injuries and trauma. And I wanted to know, did your practice innately or organically come to the population of those struggling with addiction and anxiety and self-sabotage? Or was that something that you molded? And what can you share about the love that you have for your practice and your craft as a therapist?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It definitely molded over time. So, you know, I do do some coaching for other therapists. And what I tell them, and I'll tell you on this podcast, is it's not about finding that perfect niche immediately. It's about finding a direction. And and as I walk down that direction, it narrows kind of naturally in a way. And one thing I really like about... Being a a therapist, you know, doing the the coaching thing as well is that I can focus my practice on whatever I'm interested in and whatever I feel passionate about. So in the beginning, so I'm in recovery, been sober for 10 years. So that was my beginning thing was, okay, addiction. I know something about that. I've been sober. I've been in these communities. Let me start with addictions counseling. In doing that, I started to work with a lot of men because men typically come in, that's mainly the main reason men come into therapy is for addiction or divorce. They don't really come in for any other reason. Typically their life needs to be uh, falling apart, um, which is sad. There's a whole other issue. Men don't really access mental health. So if you're a guy out there, you need a therapist, don't worry, do it, it's worth it. That being said, so I started to focus on men. Um, I started a nonprofit, the group society that you mentioned in the bio, and I learned a lot about leadership and learned a lot about kind of the hidden suffering in leadership and the the challenges that I wasn't really interested in as, as as I was an employee, but once I started to run and manage teams, I mean my company was 30 people at a time, I was like, whoa, there's a lot here that isn't so much talked about and is kind of kept secret from the general, at least therapy population. I think it's in the coaching world it's really talked about, but in therapy we don't talk about that at all. So now I work with leaders, um, so it ends up being you know male leaders in addiction, <laughs> um, and that gets that gets pretty uh, niche. That's pretty niche to, at this point, point. and it's something that I've all had personal experience with, and it's very rewarding because I feel like I can bring my therapeutic skills to leaders of organizations. And there is a trickle-down effect. You know, I don't think there's trickle-down economics, but I think there is trickle-down emotional intelligence where so many people have had a bad boss that can potentially ruin their life. But if you have a good boss, it can really change your life. And that's something that I hope to bring to my clients is not just helping them, but helping everybody in our organization.
0: I love that. Congratulations on 10 years. And thanks. Just the rawness and the personal connectivity that you can bring to your clients because you've walked their path. That's powerful.
1: Yeah, I think the older I get and the more I do this job, the more I realize how in-depth everything is. And my work has been really being clear about what's outside of my scope. Right. So for instance, when I work with corporate people, I always work with a corporate coach because I've never worked in a giant corporate environment. And I I think when I was younger, I'd be like, oh yeah, I can figure that out. But it's like, no, corporate politics and corporate environments are really, really different. I don't know anything about that. So I need to work with some partners that I have out there.
0: I love the personal touch of you just acknowledging every therapist needs a therapist and every coach needs a coach. Yes. And I'm going to throw in another question here because I love for you to separate the definition. Because you're wearing both hats, please share with the listeners what the difference is between a coach versus a therapist. It's two very different careers. It's different academic trajectories and it's different offerings. So please give us the definition of each.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's just like you said to highlight that. I think people should have both and especially you should have one if you're in the field. So I have both a coach and a therapist. So my understanding of the difference is that a coach is much more future focused it's someone that has a, sp- a very specific skill set uh, when i look for a coach i look for somebody who has walked the walk who has done the thing that i want help doing so i'm in the process of as i said expanding my business potentially hiring people i want to have a coach somebody who has a mental health business or a coaching business has employees that is you know older than me that has done the work that helps me to trust them Because they've had that lived-in life experience and can then coach me through it, right? They use coaching techniques to kind of get me where I want to go. Therapy is, in some ways, the opposite. I think it's about the past. So it's often about resolving past trauma, making sense of your life, removing, like I said, in in the bio, those unconscious barriers, those repetitive patterns. It's kind of more about dropping the baggage, reducing the load and the drag, and then the coach will help you to fly, so there's a really great combination between the two where the lighter you can get by doing this personal work in therapy, the more a coach can help you to fly. And I can say, and maybe I'm a little bit biased, I'd be curious your, your opinions about this, is that I needed to personally, I needed to be in therapy for like two or three years before I was ready for coaching. I think coaching in some ways is the more advanced technique because I hadn't worked on my personal things and my own self-sabotage and my anxiety and my own negative self-esteem that a coach could tell me something. I just wouldn't do it right? because I didn't have I wasn't higher functioning enough in order to take a coach's advice. Now that I've dropped a lot of that weight, I can work with a coach very effectively because there's not that drag. There's not that kind of emotional drag that will keep me down.
0: What a great way to frame it. And I still have a coach every time I want to grow much like you. I want to grow or do. I hire a coach who's there, who's farther down the road to yes. help me. And then I take a break from coaching and I implement what I've been coached on. And then again, it's rinse and repeat. Okay, now I want to do this. I go look for another coach. I've had a tremendous amount of loss in my life, family, friends, uh, lots to cancer. And twelve years ago, I lost five executives to cancer. Oh, so it was like. I'm going to close my practice. That was a loss after 21 years. And then, if you had said to me, Hey, Deb, you're going to move into coaching, I would have said, No, Mark, I'm, you know, it took a coach to say to me, This is a natural migration for you now, because like you with the addiction you've been there and you've experienced loss, you've returned people to work, you've lost people. And it was like, if I could get out of the generalist space of helping executives succeed and then help them when they're sick and and return to work. Wow. What if I get in the preventionist space and coach them healthy to achieve and not lose the marriage, become addicted, lose relationships. So it's much like you. It was kind of that aha moment where, you know, the universe was like, Hey, I'm going to sway you this way. It may not make sense in the beginning, but I love how you coined it. It was the drag. Something was like, okay. And combining life experience, academic experience and client experience to really frame it and pay it forward. And then it led me to creating my heart-centered leadership model. So I think the lineage of what we go through, even when we're in the valley, it's that diagram above your desk that you talked about. We can always anchor back to where we came from. And I think our clients, or in, in your case, your patients, appreciate your vulnerability because we can meet them where they're at because we've been there. And I just think that's such an intersectional sweet spot. And it's priceless when you can just be fully present and know where that person is. But because you've done the inner work, the triggers are gone. And to me, I always say when we do the inner work, we always have the opportunity and the capacity to awaken the heart-centered leader within. We all can be heart-centered leaders. So, so powerful. Okay, I'm going to switch to my fab four. These are just... Four fun questions to see what's sitting on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. Mark, tell us something we do not know about you. I think
1: what what people don't know about me is that I'm actually very competitive. I think a lot of people don't think that therapists are competitive and don't think that therapists are aggressive. And I have that in me where I want to become the best. I want to compete with other therapists. I want to, um, you know, friendly competition and playful competition. But it's something that I think a lot of my clients and, People don't see in me because, you know, you think a therapist is going to sit there and be like, wow, yeah, that sounds really hard. Right. And just kind of be very passive. But in my workplace, in my life, I'm I'm quite competitive. And it's something that I really enjoy about myself, as long as, of course, you have consensual competitive partners. And it's it's something that I notice in the therapy world. I don't get met with because many therapists are not. Which is why I actually enjoy speaking with coaches, because there is kind of that fun go get them ambition attitude.
0: Well, it's it's the solid mindset like, hey, what can I do today to be better than yesterday? It's it's a fun place to be and it keeps us out of the valley. So kudos to you. I like when people are different. I have a sign over my desk that says be different. There you go. There you go. Okay. second question. Is there a book that you have read over your lifetime that was really impactful that you feel had an integral part of who you are today?
1: Uh, I have two answers for that. I'll give, I'll give them quickly. Uh, so I, I, have a, I have a therapy answer and I have a coaching answer. How about that? Uh, the therapy answer, there's a book called Iron John by Robert Bly, which is kind of written uh, in the 90s as part of the men's movement that I remember reading and just getting blown away by. I actually read it every couple of years. I, I reread it where it talks about male psychology, male development. It's framed through this fairy tale. It's a grimace fairy tale called Iron John, which is interesting because most of those fairy tales are about women, right? It's Cinderella, Snow White, Rapunzel, all those things. And that's kind of an oral history where women were talking about what it means to be a woman. All those have hidden meanings where they were taught uh, to younger women. And then there's one, Iron John, which is about men. And he goes through and dissects this thing teaches about masculinity and shows kind of the pattern of growing from a boy to a man. And just getting that gave me something that I think, quite frankly, my, my father never quite did. And my, the culture that I was in never quite did. It never gave me that path. It never gave me something that I could relate to. And I feel like by reading that, I was connecting to literally hundreds, if not thousands of years of oral tradition and history to really understand something that truly felt like it was lost to time. Uh, so Iron John's a really good one. The uh, coaching book is uh, you probably heard about this one is Getting Things Done by David Allen which is just an organizational system that I personally use that cured my anxiety. And I will say that again, it cured my anxiety. And I'm saying this as a therapist, I don't think therapy uh, is the answer to anxiety. I think getting organized, at least for me, was a cure to my anxiety. And it's, I do more things than I've ever done and it's all organized and it's all in one place. And I feel very empowered. And that was like a very practical, but incredibly life-changing book for me.
0: You know, we get into a lot of meaningful conversations on the podcast and there's been a rinse and repeat repeat to talk about having the discipline from a behavioral standpoint to welcome and implement and sustain, but more importantly, like you said, home structure. I'm the same. If I don't have structure, it's like, you know, we can just be a hot mess, but when you take things in little chunks. And for me, I have to see my desk. I have to see, you know, the color of my desk and I can line a couple things up because our day can always, you know, go off the rails and that's okay. I do the most important things in the morning Mm -hmm. and creative work. I try and do in the morning, but life happens. Emergencies happen. We have to be able to pivot, but that's a powerful one. That's a really, really great tip. So structure helps with anxiety coming from a therapist. Doesn't get any better than that. Okay, third question, Mark. If you could have dinner with any leader, they could be alive or already passed away, who would it be? And what would the dinner conversation be?
1: I think I would go all the way back to Marcus Aurelius. I've read some Stoic philosophy in his book, Meditations, it's incredible. Um, I have a background in Buddhism and there's a lot of commonality between that. And it's really fascinating to me that both, you know, in Rome and in, you know, India and then, you know, China, Japan, similar ideas arose. And I would love to sit down and speak with him about his life, about his philosophy, about how he views the world. You know, for what he knew in his world, he was the leader of the free world. I mean, he was you think president is the leader of the free world. Marcus Rios was even more than that. he was the emperor of Rome during the height of the empire. And the question of what was it like to be a leader that had that those heart center qualities that was critically thinking about philosophy, that was meditating on death, that was trying to manage, you know, domestic famine at the time and and wars and, and actually brought Rome into a golden age through these deeper thoughts. It'd be fascinating just to get any kind of time with someone like, like that.
0: You know, I agree. He is also uh, a philosopher. I have a few of his books and. Five years ago, almost six years ago, I actually became a certified yoga teacher just to embrace that world even more. And not even about a yoga mat, the extrinsic part or the, you know, the poses, the philosophy and the principles of yoga that you learn. And I did my RYT 200, 200 hours It's incredible. And and you can just you can go down the rabbit hole and spend hours looking into the philosophy that goes into yoga and the definition, the science of the mind. So I agree with you on that. Mark, before I ask you my last question, I just want to say I'm so delighted that you had interest and wanted to be on the show. And I'm so touched that as a therapist in private practice that you've really shared your authenticity and your vulnerability in your heart today. And I'm really grateful you took the time and and our paths have intersected.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you.
0: So keep being a heart-centered leader. And my last question is how we always close out the show. Finish this sentence for me, Mark. Heart-centered leadership is?
1: Heart-centered leadership is not being afraid of yourself. And shining your heart and your own personality forward and not clamping down on the light that is within you.
0: You've been listening to the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.